Hello again. Just a quick word. We are going to have some baptisms on February the 4th. We're going to do them out at the beach. haven't decided which beach. It'll either be South Beach Park or Deerfield. I'm just trying to figure out parking and timing. Uh, you might want to start praying that there isn't one of those coal fronts like we had at Christmas. Otherwise, we're all going to be very chilly. But anyway, if you are interested in uh, being baptized on, in February, February 4th, um, I will be in room one after the service. It's just kind of catty corner over that way. Just drop in and just to get your name and make sure we know who everybody is that is thinking about it. Sound good? Yeah. So enthusiastic this year. Nice. Woo. Thank you. Thank you, JJ, for the woo. All right. Anyway. Last week, we started a new series focusing on helping us identify the thing that is happening here in our area, the thing that's happening around us, and then coming up with a plan to do something about that thing in 2023. And in an effort to help each of us specifically identify the one thing that breaks our heart, today I want to look at something that I didn't even know was a thing before I met Jesus. And the thing that I want to look at, the thing to which I'm referring, is the practice of being others-centered and not self-centered. Which is really weird in a culture where the selfie has become one of the most ubiquitous things. It's everywhere. All we think about is a selfie. But selfies are pretty self-centered. Put another way, it's a way of looking at things with an others-centered worldview, which basically brings up a time that I guess is as good as any, that I need to make a confession to you all. This others-centered worldview is not a worldview I could relate to at all for the first three decades of my life. But actually, it's even... More than that, it's not like I considered the merits of an others-centered worldview and then made a conscious determination that it wasn't for me. I didn't even know such a thing existed as an option. And as far as I can remember, no one I knew was aware that it existed as an option. Indeed, the, the only time I can remember even thinking about anybody other than myself and maybe my family was when I was wishing I had what they had. That's how I thought about others. When I was in high school, I belonged to a fraternity, high school fraternity, of course. The fraternity was part of an international organization founded to raise up a generation of young Jewish adults committed to being good, patriotic, productive citizens who endeavored to make the world a better place. That sounds radical now, doesn't it? Like, you'd get picketed now if you joined an organization like that. But I don't want you to think too highly of me. I certainly don't want you to get the wrong idea about me. I did not join that organization, that fraternity, for any altruistic or even religious reasons. I joined so I could be a part of a cool club and meet girls. Okay, that is the only reason that I joined. Anyway, most of the other kids in my fraternity were from the other side of the tracks. They were from the good side of the tracks. I was not. They wore expensive clothes. I didn't. They drove luxury cars. 
They lived in giant houses. They went to the best schools. They took extreme vacations. I didn't fit in with these people at all. And it was very obvious. And as a result, all I got out of the time that I spent in this fraternity was a bad case of covetousness. As a result, for the longest time, my sole focus in life was, how can I have the stuff they have? And with that as my worldview, can you guess how much time I spent looking for the thing about the world that breaks my heart? Can you guess? The answer would be zero. Yes, zero time. I spent zero time thinking about anybody other than myself. When I met Jesus, everything changed. Once I recognized my need of a savior because of my inherent nature to rebel against God and the things of God, and I recognized that out of God's love for me, God the Father sent Jesus, God the Son, to live the perfect life that I couldn't live, and then to voluntarily go to the cross where God put all of mankind's sins on Jesus and punished Jesus with the punishment that was meant for me and that was meant for you, And how, having no sin, Jesus died and was entombed, but he came back from the dead because he defeated sin and death on my behalf. And he ascended, he went up to heaven, and he promised one day to return to usher in God's kingdom here on earth. When I turned my life over to Jesus, and I determined in my heart to follow Jesus as my Lord and leader, and became eternally connected to the God of the universe, every single thing changed. It was the weirdest thing. I went from caring what everyone had to caring how everyone was doing. I went from wanting everyone's approval to wanting everyone to know Jesus so they could be connected to him for eternity as well. I I went from trying to figure out how I could get everything I wanted to wanting to understand how Jesus had instructed those who follow him to live their lives every day day. After I met Jesus, I learned that caring for others played a prominent role for Jesus and also for Jesus's followers. With that, I'd like to welcome you to part two of our New Year's series, Let's Do Something About It. In this three-part series, we are building on the Old Testament story of Nehemiah, which we read in the first week, last week, and applying the principles that we saw there to guide our lives in this new year in 2023. Now last week, we introduced the idea of discovering the thing that breaks our heart. Discovering the thing that when we see it happening in the world, we do something. We just feel spurred into action. Last week, we ended by agreeing to look at our own lives in order to determine what it is for each one of us, it'll be very different for each one of us, but what it is for each one of us that breaks our heart to the point that we feel compelled to do something about it. Now, if you missed this message, have no fear. It is available in perpetuity online. You can listen at hammockstreetchurch.com. You can get our podcast on the uh, Apple iTunes podcast store, Or you can pick it up on our app, or you can find it on YouTube. Lots of places to watch last week's message. Well, today, we're going to continue to consider the same question by turning to Jesus' words in order to get some guidance. So let's pray, and then we'll get started. Heavenly Father, thank you for gathering us together this morning. Thank you for 
allowing us to be a part of this community, this ecclesia, the body of Christ. Father, as we take a look at your word today, as we speak of the things you would have us understand, we would ask that you would use these things, use your word to open our heart and mind, and to spur us to action. God, we thank you for all that you do for us. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week, a little recap here, we started off by talking about the way that we love to make New Year's resolutions. How many people made New Year's resolutions? Anybody? Wow. I don't know if that's an unhopeful crowd or just a perfect crowd. We'll go with perfect, okay? But we love to make New Year's resolutions during the month of January. I went back to the gym this week, couldn't find a parking spot. That's what happens at the gym every January. By the way, the second time I went back, it was very easy to find a parking spot, so it didn't last very long. But we make our resolutions during the month of January, and, and most resolutions are centered around what we've come to term as self-improvement. And as we've discussed, there's nothing wrong with self-improvement. Nothing wrong with self-improvement on its face. It is certainly actually biblical to want to improve yourself. Self-improvement allows us to be good stewards of our bodies and our brains as we seek to improve our physical health and wellness. Self-improvement allows us to be proper stewards of the money and the success and the wins that, that God provides for us as we seek to improve our financial and professional wellness. So that's a good thing too. And while these goals are important goals, these goals are not ultimate goals. And while I sincerely hope that every single one of us is successful at reaching our personal important goals, and I hope that every one of us can obtain optimal health in every area of our lives, it seems that our lives need to amount to more than just that. In our lives, we need to achieve goals that are more ultimate. Ultimate goals are goals that not only make our own lives better, but improve the lives of others and make the world a better place. Now, in Nehemiah 1, we saw how Nehemiah, who was a Hebrew living in exile in Susa, in modern-day Iran, heard about the conditions in his ancestral homeland back in Judah, in Jerusalem, and he felt Brokenhearted. He had never even been there, we don't think, but he still felt brokenhearted about the conditions of his ancestral homeland. And Nehemiah's story inspired us to take these first three weeks of 2023 to pray about and to think about what it is that breaks our hearts. To think about what it is going on in our world that we have seen or we have made note of what's going on in our world over and over and over again that just causes our heart to break, and therefore it requires action from us. And then we also want to see where is the place that we can jump in to change at least one person's life and thereby begin changing our world. Now, there are so many examples of people who have understood the power of addressing the thing that breaks our hearts. Just a quick story, in 1952, the Reverend Everett Swanson flew from Chicago to South Korea to minister to the American troops fighting in the Korean War. During his time there, he grew increasingly troubled by the sight of hundreds of war orphans abandoned by society, abandoned by their families who were living on the streets. One morning, the Reverend saw city workers scooping up what looked to be 
piles of rags and throwing them into the back of a truck. And when he walked up to the truck for a closer look, he was horrified to see that the piles were not rags, but they were the frozen bodies of orphans who had died overnight in the streets. Well, Swanson couldn't turn his back on these unwanted children, and he vowed to find a way to help them. Back in Chicago, the Reverend began including his experience in Korea in his preaching and in his revival teachings. And Christians responded, and they began to donate funds to purchase rice for the children, to purchase fuel for the children. And before long, Swanson developed sponsorship programs for individuals or families or churches to support these orphans for a few dollars a month. The sponsorship money provided Bible lessons, food, clothing, shelter, medical aid. And to handle these funds, to attend to the day-to-day business of ministering to the orphans, Swanson formed a nonprofit organization, which he ran out of his home. In 1963, he changed the name of his organization to Compassion. Compassion International. And he named the organization Compassion after Jesus' words found in Matthew chapter 15. Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I am unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. So from those humble beginnings, today Compassion International, which, which most of us have probably heard about, serves over two million people, babies, children, young adults, young adults and children and babies who are in poverty in 27 different countries. Since 1952, millions and millions of children have been saved from starvation and introduced to Jesus simply because one man's heart was broken and he decided to do something about it. Did you know that Korea is the most Christian of all the nations in Asia? Did you know that? A lot of it has to do with this kind of ministry. Now, that sounds fairly straightforward and simple, right? Guy sees something, he goes home and starts something, and look what happens. But if it's so simple, why, why is it so hard to do? Why is it so difficult? Why aren't we all always doing all of this all the time? And it's in there that lies the rub. See, nowadays, it's not all that remarkable to hear about a wealthy actor or a famous person, or an athlete, to take some of his or her personal wealth and hire people to implement their vision. That's kind of how it goes. Is people support people and ministries to do things for them. But how can a person like you, and how can a person like me accomplish a similar feat? And, and how can you and I avoid the ever-so-human response to the needs of others? Because usually what we do is we see people who are in need, and you know what we do? We go, someone's got to do something about that. That's what we do. Someone. Someone's got to do something about that. And then we stop right there and just wait for that someone or something to happen or to take place. Instead of responding by proclaiming, if it's to be, it's up to me. By the way, it's funny, if you look at the attribution of that quote, there's about four or five different attributions. I'm not sure any of them are accurate, but we've probably all heard the quote or a version of it before. Well, we can all begin to address this question once we understand this important truth. If we're going to tackle the thing that breaks our hearts, we need to begin by understanding that if we want to change something in the world, 
it's going to require a sacrifice on our part. Working to better our world will require us to give up something. Now, it might require us to give up some time. It might require us to give up some money. It might require us to give up an opportunity in another area. If you're working here, you can't be over there. Or it might require us to give up time that we were going to spend on something else that we value. But working to better our world is going to cost us something, no matter what it is. And it's going to cost us some life. And there's a problem with that. The problem with that is, is that deep down, none of us really wants to give up any of our own life. In fact, if we're being completely candid, completely transparent, we spend most of our lives trying to do the opposite of that. We don't want to give up any of our life. We want to preserve our life for ourselves. And, and while that's true whether you're a Jesus follower or not, for the Jesus follower, we can't allow ourselves to get stuck there. As Jesus' people, we need to get over that instinct because Jesus taught us that self-sacrifice is central to our calling. Jesus made it extremely clear. If we desire to follow him, if we wish to submit our lives to him, if we want to live our lives for him, if we seek to serve as his witnesses in this broken and fallen world, if we aspire to address the thing in this world that breaks our hearts, we're going to have to sacrifice our lives. Following Jesus has never been, I want to say that again, following Jesus has never been about simply listening to his teachings. Following Jesus has always been about jumping in and doing the things about which he spoke. Following Jesus has always been about giving up our causes for his causes. So for the rest of this morning, we're going to take a look at the way Jesus taught that principle to us and how we can begin to apply that principle in our own individual lives as well. So we'll start off in Luke's gospel. Remember, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. So, so the third book of the New Testament. Now, Luke is the gospel writer who provided us with the most detailed factual account of Jesus' activity. So if you remember, Luke wasn't in the group of the 12 when Jesus was walking around here on the earth. Luke went around and interviewed those guys. He interviewed all the eyewitnesses. Luke was a doctor, so he was a scientist. He was a scientific mind. And he took all this evidence and he clearly, carefully chronicled it so we could all now have this historical record for us. And so Luke helps us to envision the things that were actually going on in that place at that time. So here's what was happening in the lead up to today's teaching. So, if you have a Bible, you're welcome to open up to Luke 14. You don't have to. I'll share the story with you, and you can trust me that I'm telling you the truth. At the beginning of Luke 14, we find Jesus having Sabbath dinner at the home of a Pharisee. Who were the Pharisees? They were the religious leaders, the Jewish religious leaders of the day. Now, recall that the Pharisees were set on discrediting Jesus in any way that they could. They felt that Jesus and his teachings were a threat to them, a threat to their way of life, and they weren't going to have it. Well, then... A man with an abnormal swelling in his body, some translations call it dropsy, we don't use that word 
anymore. There's an abnormal swelling in his body. People believe that that abnormal swelling probably was as a cause of a um, congestive heart failure or kidney failure. But anyway, he approached Jesus and he was hoping to be healed. And Jesus healed him, which caused the religious Pharisees to question the propriety, to question whether it was proper for Jesus to work to heal on the Sabbath. Well, Jesus immediately shut them down. Then they argued with Jesus some more, which caused him to critique their selfish attitudes and tell them to instead live generously and to serve people who could not help them back in return. And then one dinner guest continued to argue against Jesus, and Jesus responded with the parable of the great banquet, suggesting that if because of their misplaced priorities, God's people declined his invitation to supper with him, those people would simply be replaced by other people who didn't decline, by other people who would accept his invitation. And from there, Jesus left for Jerusalem and ultimately the cross. And he went to Jerusalem with a crowd in tow, a crowd following him. Jesus always, always, always drew a crowd. But the crowd didn't know where Jesus was going, and the crowd didn't know what lay ahead. They probably figured that Jesus was heading to Jerusalem to receive his crown, to become the king, the king of the Jews who would take over and finally get rid of those pesky Romans. They were assuming that he would go to Jerusalem so he could help his Jewish people to finally establish their superiority over the Roman occupiers. Because the people believed that their long-awaited Messiah was Jesus and that he'd finally come to vanquish their Roman oppressors. That, so they wanted to pledge their loyalty to him, their fealty to him, and they wanted to do so in order to receive a benefit for themselves, in order to receive the benefit of being associated with him. But that's not the way things worked out. Instead, here's what Jesus told them. So we go to Luke chapter 14, verse 26. He said this, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So Jesus wanted to show these people that belonging to him had a cost. Anyone who desires to be one of my disciples is going to pay a price. What's the price? Let's have a look. First off, anyone desiring to be a disciple of Jesus would need to hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life. So much for family harmony, right? Uh, years ago, I knew a very, very legalistic professing Christian, this is a true story, who literally disowned his entire family, his wife and his six children, as well as his own parents and her parents. And when I asked him, why would you do that? He explained to me, because Jesus said, I have to hate the people closest to me. Could that be right? Is that what that means? What do you think? No, you're right. It's not what it means. See, even though the Greek word used here for hate is the word miseo, which does translate to the word hate, that's not what Jesus was teaching. And this gets kind of weird, and you're welcome to check my facts and all that stuff, but you have to go back and look at ancient Jewish culture to understand what was going on here. 
Jesus' Jewish culture was well-versed in the use of not only sarcasm, and I think we've made that pretty clear around here, but also the use of extreme hyperbolic language. It's interesting, in fact, none of the ancient Semitic languages had any word at all for something moderate when it came to describing any kind of cordial human connection. There was just no word for something moderate. As a result, only extreme language was used to describe certain relationships. Certain relationships could only be described in what we say are binary terms, one way or the other, in terms of love or hate. Now, I'm going to prove this statement to you because you can see that Luke used the word hate again in a similar context a little bit later on, two chapters later on. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will what? Hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. So if you read the context here, he's not saying, Jesus wasn't saying that a servant hated his master in the way that we understand the emotional definition of the word hate today. Rather, in this verse, Jesus was merely saying that a person cannot love God and money equally. That a person has to pick one or the other as the main object of their devotion. All right, want more evidence? Here we go. Moses used the word as well in Genesis 29. And Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb. Now again, verse 30, we read that Jacob loved both Rachel and Leah. He loved them both. He just loved Rachel more, right? But the next verse, we see Leah as being described as being, described as being hated. As such, the word hate that Jesus used here, if anyone, does not come to me, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, etc., this is merely a way to convey that, and here comes the point, the disciple of Jesus would have to be more devoted to Jesus than he or she was to even their own family. Now, this might not be a radical idea for all of us, but it was absolutely a radical idea in the family-centric world of ancient Judaism. You simply did not turn your back on your own family. They were the only people you could rely on. Okay, you got that? You understand that? All right. Then Jesus said that any disciple of his needed to be prepared to sacrifice for him because he was going to sacrifice for them. They needed to, verse 27, bear their own cross. Essentially then, both of these statements boil down to the issue of control. Jesus was telling the crowd that if they desired to be his followers, his disciples, they had to give him total control over their lives, which makes perfect sense when we consider the definition of the word disciple. The Greek word for disciples, anybody remember this? It's mathetes, mathetes, which is where we get the word math or mathematics. And just as in the study of mathematics, just as it requires a complete commitment to a systematic, gradual progression of knowledge, to learning the basics, and then building upon the foundation of those basics to solve mathematical problems, becoming a disciple requires a similar, systematic, gradual progression regarding our knowledge about God, our knowledge of God, and our abilities to serve God according to the way he's created us. 
all so that we're able to address the issues of life by relying upon the God whom we've come to love. And there's more. Implied in Jesus' words, here in Luke 14, about our putting him above all others and our being willing to sacrifice as he sacrificed for us, the notion of giving up control of our own lives and turning that control over to someone else, namely God, is the issue. So what's Jesus' point with all of this? A disciple of his was not merely someone who followed him around. Remember, when he said this, he was talking to a huge crowd of people who just followed him around. They were literally following him around. So he's saying, you can't just follow me around. You can't just want to be physically close to me. Again, remember, crowds were constantly vying to get close to Jesus, to touch Jesus, to be seen with Jesus. But a disciple of Jesus was required to make a choice, a voluntary, volitional choice. Jesus was asking, are you willing to choose me over everything else in your life? And are you willing to sacrifice whatever it takes to advance my cause. In other words, are you willing to let me, Jesus, be the only Lord of your life? So following Jesus is then self-denial, not self-improvement. The Jesus follower must, quote, die to his or her, him or her, him or herself to follow Jesus and nobody else. That, that's kind of heavy stuff, right? I mean, that's, that's tough. And at first blush, it seems a bit discouraging. But, but don't tune out here because you'll miss the best part. Lest anyone think that Jesus was trying to make the lives of his disciples, or, or our lives for that matter, worse. Or that Jesus was trying to take away from us something great, he was not. Jesus was teaching us how to make our lives better. Jesus was teaching us how to make our lives abundant. Remember what he said in John 10.10? 10? I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Another translation says, have it to the full. On another occasion, Jesus said something similar to what we just read in Luke. Here's what Jesus said in Mark chapter 8, verse 34. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Essentially, here Jesus is saying, if you want to be my disciple... If you don't just want to follow me around and go to the places where I show up, but you really want to be my disciple, your life can't be about you. Your life has to be about me. Because, and he continues, whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. This is the crux, no pun intended for anybody who gets the reference, of the issue. We want to save our lives. We want to improve ourselves. But Jesus told us that if we really want to do that, we'll first need to die to ourselves and begin living for him. Jesus said that if we think we're going to save our own lives, we are going to fail. And the exact thing that we want to gain a better life, we're destined to lose. I love the way Andy, Andy Stanley puts it. Here's what he says. Whoever devotes themselves to themselves will have nothing but themselves to show for themselves. You got that? Whoever devotes themselves to themselves will have nothing but themselves to show for themselves. 
But whoever is willing to say, Jesus, I'm here. Use me to say, Jesus, the answer is yes. What do you want me to do? We'll gain a life that is abundant, eternal, and ultimate. We'll gain a life that we really, really desire. And this life is available to each one of us when we give our lives to Jesus in exchange for lives that are bigger, better, and far more fulfilling. So, when we're pondering the question, what breaks my heart? We need to focus less on self-improvement and more on self-denial. Because left to ourselves, we, all of us, myself included, we will all live for ourselves. But Jesus wants to rescue you from you. Jesus wants to rescue us from us. Jesus wants to make us a better offer, but we'll never be able to say yes to Jesus until we're able to say no to ourselves. Now, of course, I don't know everything about all of you, although I do know a lot, so watch your step. And I also know this. You are not enough for you to live for. None of us are. There is more to us than our looks, than our health, than our wealth, or than our stuff. Now, I'm not saying in any way that we shouldn't take care of those things. I'm not saying that at all. But what I am saying is this. As a child of God, there is so much more to you than that. And Jesus is inviting each one of you to take that life and, be, and to own it. Jesus is inviting you, each one of you, to a life of significance. And that invitation, even though it's going to be different for each one of us, is going to require something of each one of us. It's going to require our very lives. And though you might not yet be in a position to see it, there's going to come a day when you realize that the things you've chased your whole life, the things that we've all chased our whole lives, aren't going to be enough. Now, in my job, I have the blessing of actually being with people when they leave this world and enter the next. I have stood by many a deathbed, and I can tell you, not one of the people to whom I have ministered at that time in their life, not one of those people gave one hoot about the things that they had accumulated. Not a one of them. All they cared about was whether their lives were significant whether they'd made an impact upon the people in their lives into whom they poured themselves. They never remembered what they got, but they always remembered what they gave to other people. So do you want a life that matters? If your life is all about you, you won't have one. But as Jesus said, if you live your life for him, you will. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. This is an invitation to significance. Jesus is inviting you to significance. Jesus is inviting you to live a life of purpose. Jesus is inviting you to abundant living. And you can start moving in that direction when you first determine what breaks your heart, and then you determine what you're willing to give up to get it. What you're willing to do to make the world a better place.
Jesus does not want you to get to the end of your life and have that life have been all about you and leaves you with nothing to show for it. Jesus has called us to so much more. So let's keep on trying to determine what breaks your heart. Amen? We'll finish this up next week. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for our time together. Thank you for a word that's a little difficult, but also a word that's very encouraging. Because we know that we can't do this on our own, and even though we think we can, deep down we know we're not fooling anyone. So God, help us to understand what it is in this world that we can't live with anymore, that we need to change for you. And God, help us to draw closer and closer as we do so. We love you, we praise you, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.